Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'd like to start this week by giving a huge shout-out to all of you amazing listeners who've shown your love and support of the show over on our new Patreon page. You are the fuel that keeps this infernal engine running and churning out nightmares to haunt your sleepless nights. If you're not a Patreon supporter, but you'd like to be, head on over to our new page at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Patrons have access to ad-free episodes and bonus content you won't find anywhere else. In fact, we're in the process of wrangling our first piece of bonus fiction. I won't say much, but I will tell you we're starting off with a killer classic. But that's enough housekeeping. What say we get back on the road? This week, we find ourselves in Utah. Covering more than 2,300 square miles, the Great Salt Lake is one of the saltiest bodies of water in the world. That makes it fairly strange and unique to begin with, so it comes as no surprise that some of the stories that surround it are stranger still. John Baptiste was, by all accounts, exactly the kind of man you'd expect to take up the occupation of gravedigger. One of the first gravediggers employed by Salt Lake City in the late 1800s, he was a shy, quiet introvert, who preferred spending time alone with his thoughts rather than socializing or visiting with friends. He was a punctual hard worker, though, so the people of Salt Lake City never had reason to pay him much attention. In fact, most people would probably have considered themselves fortunate to not have a reason to deal with Baptiste. For about three years, he went about his work, day in and day out, digging holes two and a half feet by eight feet and six feet deep. Then, he'd place the coffin in the hole 
and go about reversing the work he'd just done, filling the hole back in with shovel after shovel of black earth. It was thankless work, but he seemed to enjoy it. In the 1800s, funerals were usually held at the deceased's home, so, other than the occasional lingering mourner or family member at the graveside, for the most part, John Baptiste would have worked alone, just the way he liked it. When a man showed up from the eastern part of the States, however, Baptiste's quiet routine was changed forever. The man was there to request the body of his recently deceased brother, to have him exhumed so he could be transported back east to be buried in the family plot. His wish was granted, and the grave was dug up. The casket was carefully raised from its resting place, and the top pried off. But, rather than finding his brother's body resting peacefully in suit and jewelry in which he was buried, the corpse inside the casket was completely naked and lying face down, as though he had been dumped there with little to no care or consideration for his dignity. The outraged brother immediately contacted city officials, and an investigation was launched. Both Baptiste and the cemetery itself were put on surveillance, and it wasn't long before the watchful eyes of the investigators witnessed some unusual activity. Baptiste was spotted pushing a wheelbarrow between a storage shed and a freshly opened grave. When the authorities rushed in to intercept him, they were shocked to find the contents of the wheelbarrow, a naked human corpse. Baptiste, they discovered, had stripped the body of clothing and valuables in the shed and was transporting it back to the grave to be dumped back into its casket like the man's brother. They arrested Baptiste on the spot and immediately went to search his home. Inside they found clothing, a lot of clothing, clothing that clearly had not belonged to Baptiste. Some had been used as drapery, some for covering furniture, others lay in piles around the home. And in the basement, a large vat used for boiling the corpse's clothing. Even grave robbers can appreciate the need for hygiene, I suppose. As soon as the locals caught wind of what had happened, they flocked to the cemetery to check on the graves of their loved ones. Police collected all of the clothing from Baptiste's home and combed the local second-hand stores, where they learned he had pawned many pieces of jewelry for cash. All of the clothing and personal items they collected were taken to City Hall to allow relatives the chance to identify them. All told, the total number of corpses that Baptiste had robbed was estimated at more than 350. John Baptiste's trial was short and decisive. From all accounts, he didn't put up much of a fight. For the crime of grave robbery, he was branded with a hot iron and banished to Fremont Island in the Great Salt Lake to live out the rest of his days. They chained him up, threw him in a boat, and rowed out to the island, where he was unshackled and dumped on the shore to fend for himself. It was about three weeks later when law enforcement returned to the island to check on their prisoner. On searching the island, they found the remains of a campfire and the corpse of a cow that had been killed and tanned for leather. But no other trace of Baptiste was found. 
Some believe that he killed himself rather than try to scrape out a sad existence on the remote island. Others think he built a raft and escaped, or possibly died in the attempt. But whether or not John Baptiste physically made it off the island, there's a chance he never truly left. Stories of a man who wanders the shores and beaches of the island still persist today. Dressed in the dirty workwear of a grave digger and clutching a bundle of wet, rotting clothes. It's amazing, isn't it? The lengths some people will go to for a new outfit. Now let's get you fitted with some fiction, shall we? Our first story of the evening comes from O.D. Hegra. O.D. Hegra is a former academic teaching and involved in biomedical research at the University of Minnesota and later in the biotech industry. After three decades plus of trying to understand how the world works, he retired. Now he sits at his keyboard every day, spending less time thinking about how things are and more time imagining how they could be. Despite residing in the sunny Sonoran desert south of Tucson and basking in the bright smile and wisdom of his muse and beautiful spouse, Maleva, his journey with the written word always seems to take him to the dark side. And so, he is pleased to offer up for our listening pleasure this inky little piece of flash fiction. Considering the horror of the current political and social climate, its theme of comeuppance, he says, seems wholly appropriate. Join me for O.D. Hegra's Immersion Art, which first appeared in Bewildering Stories number 578 and is included in his print anthology Something's Been Brewing, available on Amazon. All in this together, folks. The transient's voice competes effectively with the myriad of clatter and clamor that surrounds us on this cold fall evening. He is right beside me now. You need to walk in our shoes, man. His words emerge in puffs of condensation, disappearing as rapidly as they appear. The lights of the four-star restaurant beckon, and we pick up our pace. He's holding up a large white sign. No gifts too small, it reads. Rob escapes first, holding the door for Janet. The warmth embraces me, and I turn for one last look. The man's hat is pulled down against the chill. But even in the dim light, I can see the sunken jowls, the weathered face, the broken teeth, and the clouded green eyes. Asshole, I think. Panhandling in this neighborhood? We should have called a cop, I say. Janet and Rob agree. The whole thing took less than a minute, but could have ruined our evening. Still a bit shaken by the encounter, I set my second glass of the 55 Mouton Rothschild. Our waiter arrives in the Chateau Briand, à point, erases all remaining stress. But the incident remains the focus of conversation during the meal. 
Then the creme brulee arrives, and we switch to more mundane things, like business. At the end of the evening, we all agree. We're dyed in the wool of social Darwinists. It's such a compelling philosophy when you're at the top of the heap. Each of us gets exactly what we deserve, Janet offers. Those bleeding-heart liberals on the Upper East Side, Rob chimes in, assuage their guilt by pleading for the poor with their progressive agenda. The so-called 99% have the attention span of a goldfish, I add. Then back to their miserable little lives, and the transient, telling us to walk in their shoes? Those shoes are too small because their goals are too limited. Their initiative lacks breadth. And Janet raises her glass. Because their work ethic is too meager. Finishing the thought, Rob holds his glass high as well. To say nothing of their diminished intellectual capability. And my glass joins theirs. Hear, hear! We all cry out in unison. Our glasses clink together and the last of the wine disappears. I'm 20 minutes late. Janet is going to be really tickled. The banner reads, Gallery Romani. I pull my collar up against the cold. Rob saw the advertisement in The Voice yesterday. He told Janet and she told me, knowing I needed something au courant for next week's column. Immersion art, the ad read. It sounded eccentric enough to interest the haughty crowd I write for. Otherwise, you would never find me in this kind of neighborhood. It's twilight and I scan the street. Shadows clothe every storefront entrance. Hiding what, I wonder. The gentle ringing of chimes welcomes me as I gladly enter the gallery. Pretty stark. All the walls are painted flat white and empty. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, hello. There's a distant echo. The ad said 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. It's only half past six. Hello, 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 hello. I pass into the next room. Small, cramped actually. Anybody here? Anybody here? Anybody here? Anybody here? Again, the echo. A pedestal dominates the middle of the room. It just sits there, like the walls, empty. Janet? You hear Janet? There's a hint of something in the air. Can't make it out. The next room mirrors the last two except the walls are painted gray. Accent lights mark where all this immersion art should be, but again, just empty spaces. Janet obviously is not here. Got pissed and left, no doubt. I pull up my cell and look down. No bars. Damn AT&T. I'll try one more room and then I'm gone. The passageway is dark. Really dark. I can see a green glow spilling out at the far end. This room is larger than the others. The illumination comes from two spotlights halfway down the expanse, focused on the front wall. Something down there shimmers in the light. That odor... Stronger now. I am standing in front of the only piece of art in this whole bloody gallery. It's a 6 by 12 inch framed holographic picture. Above it hangs a golden placard. The words shine in the light. Madame Romani's emergent art. Join us. 
I'm thinking, no professional gallery would display a work of this size in this manner. I can just make out the face of a figure in the foreground. The rest is a blur. I step in closer. That odor is intense now. Pungent. Familiar. The face in the hologram is that of an older man. Somehow familiar as well, I think, as I tilt my head from side to side. I see the intended movement. He's holding up one hand. The fingers move back and forth, pointing to the background. His green eyes shift as well, to look in the direction of the pointing fingers. The man's smile reveals a definite need for some restorative dentistry. His hat is pushed back on his forehead. A few wisps of hair escape from beneath. Age spots dot the gaunt face. I stop my movement and stare directly into his eyes. They seem to widen. He is looking at me. Have I seen those eyes before? They move and I follow their gaze. It's too blurry. I'll have to put on my reading glasses. Much better. Ah. Now it is clear what he wants me to see. It's the back end of an alley. There's a rusted 55-gallon drum. A large white placard rests against it, and smoke floats above it. That's it. I realize the odor. It's the smell of burning trash. And then I see them. The man and the woman. Their clothes are tattered and they're... They're hopping up and down. On bare feet. My God, they have no shoes. They look out towards me, motioning frantically, waving their arms in front of their bodies like they are moving something away. Is it the smoke that's bothering them? It... It looks like... For a moment, I cannot move. Then I push my face to within inches of the hologram. In the verdant light, I recognize the face of the woman. Janet? The name escapes my lips in disbelief. Janet! The man moves forward now, more animated than ever, shifting his weight from one bare foot to the other on the icy asphalt. It's... For God's sake, it's Rob! I stare at his moving lips. He's yelling something, his mouth agape. Then I realize he's not pushing the smoke away from him. He's frantically motioning for me to get back. To get back away from the picture. I know what he's screaming now. Run! Run! I try, but I cannot move. I am only inches away from the shimmering green light. And my eyes find those of the man. The transient. I recognize him now. The gaunt features and the damaged teeth. It's his sign up against the trash barrel. I see his other hand now. He's holding something in the darkness. Slowly he pulls it forward. A pair of shoes dangle from tied laces across his palm. He pushes his head back into view. The pupils of his eyes are huge pools. My eyes close. I am falling, falling, falling into those dark green pools.
That was O.D. Hegra's Immersion Art, as read by Nick Shaner. Nick Shaner is 25 years old and lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. He has been doing voice acting and narrations for over a year and has worked on the podcast Samwell Sift's Loved One Discovery or Recovery Services, as well as being involved in the Charlotte film community. He is currently working on an audiobook. When he's not doing any of those things, and not sitting at a desk at his job, he enjoys exploring local breweries, binging Game of Thrones, and planning the next board game night with friends. Thank you, Nick. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story comes to us from Chris Barnum. Chris Barnum spent a long time working for the British government, but now just makes stuff up for himself. Ravello Steps first appeared in UK horror magazine Black Static. If you like the story, check out Chris's first novel, Among the Living, with which it shares some story DNA. Chris also has a new novel out with U.S. publisher Phyllis Vertis Publishing. It's called 51 and features a time-traveling cop marooned in 1940s London, forced to choose between saving the future or the woman he loves. Interzone magazine described it as better plotted than Connie Willis. Chris lives in London and can be found at chrisbarnumbooks.com and on Twitter at Barnum underscore Chris. Children of the night, join me for Chris Barnum's Ravello Steps, first published in Black Static.
look like shit. I cleaned myself up in the room and rinsed my mouth with some whiskey from the minibar, but I obviously show signs of the afternoon. Like you care. I get myself a peroni and sit at Elizabeth's table. She pushes her bag under the table with her foot. She looks fantastic again. Dark hair pulled back and tied with the jewelled clip, lips full and dark as if she has eaten cherries. This morning's faint lines around her eyes are gone and she is spray-painted again with youth. Seriously? A cool hand on my wrist. What's wrong? When you left this morning, I thought maybe you were gone for good. The hotel bar has a view over the bay, and through the window behind Elizabeth, light is fast draining from the sky, turning the sea below a deep, impossible blue. I decided to take a drive, I say. The coast road twisted like a lunatic ribbon along the cliff tops. I barely noticed the sumptuous views of Sapphire Sea and small towns perched above the water. My mind was full of Elizabeth's bizarre behaviour and the way she walked out before breakfast. The other times, back in London, it was easier to ignore what she was doing. In a city of millions of strangers, she could disappear for days while I lost myself in work. She didn't say where she went and I didn't ask. Over the years, whenever she came back, it was always good between us. She returned refreshed and revived, always with enough energy for both of us to apply jump leads to our flagging romance. Here in Italy, it was different. It brought into focus the things I could ignore back home, the gaps in our relationship, the lack of common ground, the absence of family or friends or anyone who could tell me what she did and where she was before I met her, or what she did those times when she disappeared without explanation. I stopped in a small town called Atrani and sat on the grey beach of volcanic sand. High crags on either side pinned the town beneath a pale blue V of sky. Fifty yards away, a woman walked rapidly along the street. It looked like Elizabeth, but the glare of sun on windows made it hard to see. The woman turned a corner and disappeared. I ran up the beach and crossed the road. A narrow street led under an arch into a small square. There was no sign of the woman. To my left, a narrow set of stone steps led upwards for a few yards and then disappeared around to the left. A sign on the wall said, Ravello Steps. Elizabeth had once said something about Ravello when we were planning the holiday. She spent some time in Italy in her youth, she said. An aunt lived here. I started to climb the steps. Why do that? Elizabeth says. She gestures with a finger and the waiter steps over to refill her wine glass. Why not? You were off somewhere and I was on my own. Did the steps lead anywhere interesting? You'd like to know, would you? She gives me a chilly smile over the top of her glass. Her lipstick leaves a line on the rim like dried blood. The candle on our table throws shadows in her eyes. After about twenty steps, the staircase turned left and gave out onto another tiny square containing two locked wooden doors and another set of stairs leading further up. These wound behind another chapel and steadily on up the side of the valley. After a few minutes, the steps levelled out and became a rough, sloping path above steeply terraced vineyards. I climbed for maybe twenty minutes, seeing no one. 
The path levelled out further and bent to the left, past a moderately sized building with walls painted pale orange. Green vine tendrils snaked around shuttered windows. The house looked closed up and empty. Behind it, further up the hillside, a couple of other buildings were obviously abandoned and overgrown, but this one was in better condition. Attached to a railing around the flat roof, partly obscured by vines, was a small sign. It said, Villa Lydia. Is it the name of the house that attracted you? Elizabeth's voice is a silken whisper in the darkness of the bar. The day we arrived, we were in the taxi from the station. You said you had an aunt who lived in Ravello. I have lots of aunts. You said her name was Lydia. She lived alone in a house high on the side of a hill. You've never... Elizabeth's eyes are locked on mine like dark magnets. Followed before. How do you know? I walked to the front door of the villa. It was wooden, reinforced with vertical bands of tarnished iron. There was no doorbell, but a large brass door knocker in the shape of a cat's head. You said your aunt liked cats. My, you don't miss anything, do you? The knocker felt heavy and cold. I tapped it twice against the door. The noise echoed inside the house. Hello, I could say if anyone came to the door. I'm a friend of Elizabeth Barlow. I saw the name of your house and thought maybe you were her aunt. I knocked again, a bit harder. The sound wasn't as startling this time, but something else was. With a soft, groaning creak, the door moved inward a few inches. Everything around me held its breath. I pushed the door and it swung inwards with a sound like leaves scraping on concrete. Halfway up a mountain in a foreign country. If anything happened to me, no one knew I was here. It was obvious what I should do. Turn round and go back to Ratrani. Return to the hotel and spend the afternoon by the pool with a book and some beer. When Elizabeth came back, I could try again to believe things could work between us. I stepped inside and pushed the door partly closed behind me. I was in some kind of sitting room. Furniture was draped with white dust sheets and there was a large fireplace in the wall across the room. It was cool in there. The hair on my bare arms prickled with goose flesh. The floor was smooth stone and my feet made little sound as I crossed the room. Through the next door was a sparsely furnished hallway with a couple more doors off it and a narrow staircase leading up into darkness. I walked quietly along the hall and peered through the doors, listening all the time for any sound not made by me. One room looked like a dining room, with a long table surrounded by eight chairs. The next had low armchairs shrouded in dust sheets and a television set, the sole sign that anyone had lived here since the 19th century. Against the wall was an old-style desk, one of those where the writing board folds up and over the front of the desk, sealing it but not in use. Unlike the other pieces of furniture, this looked interestingly clean and free of dust. It wasn't locked opening readily when I gave it an experimental tug. The desk contained a honeycomb of small compartments, some holding pens and other writing equipment, some with paper and envelopes. I'm shocked at you, Elizabeth says. Really, I am. Digging around in a stranger's home? What were you thinking? People do worse things? I'm sure. She gives me that cool look again, half amused, half contemptuous. But not people you know, surely.
You tell me. She holds my gaze, and in the end I drop my eyes. I speak again to the tabletop, sliding my finger over the layer of condensation on the outside of my beer glass. I didn't see anything private. Really? Not in the desk, anyway. Is that a sound in the house? I hold myself very still to listen. Is it someone walking past on the Ravello path? The wind playing with one of the dust sheets in the first room. I walk back to check the front door. It was open enough to show about six inches of bright sunlight outside the house. I couldn't remember how I'd left it. Open like this or closed? I never knew you were so reckless. Elizabeth leans forward. Her fleshy lips are parted and her teeth shine like bleached bone in the candlelight. I like it. Obviously, the sensible thing was to leave the house and go back to Atrani. I take a sip of my beer. Obviously. Behind Elizabeth, night has fallen, and the lights of houses on the dark slopes above Sorrento look like salt spilled on a black cloth. But you were having an adventure, weren't you? And you hadn't looked upstairs yet. The stairs were covered in thin carpet, and the walls of the first floor landing were hung with thick embroidered cloth and several paintings. One picture, at the head of the staircase, briefly caught my eye. It showed a young woman standing stiffly upright, long pale hands at her sides. Her hair was pulled back and tied in a topknot with pearl tresses. Her eyebrows were arched and plucked thin. Her mouth was closed in a tight line like the tail of a snake. There was no writing to indicate who she was, who the artist might have been, or even when the painting was done. It struck me how much the woman in the painting looked like Elizabeth. I wondered whether this was the aunt she had mentioned, but it looked too old even to be her aunt. Something moved behind me. The sound came from a room further along the landing. I crept closer to the partly open door of the furthest room. There was a low humming noise, like a distant motorway. I leaned forward and put my eye to the narrow crack where the hinged side of the door met the frame. I could see only part of the room. Below a window in the far wall, I saw about half of a bed. On the floor beside it was a tangle of clothes and a couple of shoes. One shoe was a man's black leather brogue. The other was a familiar-looking red strappy sandal. I heard a whisper in a woman's voice and a few answering words in a deeper male voice. Then a woman came into view, her back to the door. She was naked except for her black briefs. As I watched, she slipped these down and kicked them away out of sight and lay down on the bed. Another figure came into view, a man this time, also naked and in a state of obvious arousal. He stepped up to the bed and knelt beside the woman, whose head and shoulders were out of my view. The man said something inaudible and the woman replied. It sounded like they were speaking Italian. The man got fully onto the bed, facing the woman, his face in profile. He looked about 40, hair slightly thinning, Italian-looking with olive skin a little pockmarked. The bizarre thing was that the man wore a mask, a black thing that covered his eyes and forehead with narrow slits for eyes and a sharp point over his nose like the beak of a bird. He leaned forward to kiss the woman and she sat up, bringing her face into view. She also wore a mask. Hers was made of red silk with silver stars sewn into it. It covered most of her face, making it problematic for the man to kiss her mouth. He didn't seem to mind, 
quickly turning his attention to other areas. The woman's hair was the same colour as Elizabeth's, but this woman's hair was loose, whereas Elizabeth had worn her hair up in recent weeks and I wasn't sure whether it was shorter than this. The man lay on his back and the woman sat astride him. A voice inside me screamed that I should leave Villa Lydia, I should just walk away. I didn't, of course. I stood and watched. The woman reached to her side, and when her hand came back into view, she held a small bottle, about two-thirds full of a thick-looking amber liquid. She held the bottle out, and the man's head appeared, and he took a long gulp from the bottle. She put the bottle to her own lips, but it didn't look to me as if she swallowed anything. Then she put the bottle down, shifted her position slightly, and reached between her legs, and guided the man's cock up inside her. The masked woman moved on top of the man for a short while. He made a fair bit of noise, but she remained quiet, crouched over him in an attitude of concentration. After a few minutes, almost imperceptibly, things became quieter rather than speeding to the expected climax. The man's breathing slowed and he stopped grunting. The woman also began to slow down, staring down at him. I couldn't see the man's face clearly, but he now seemed to be lying completely still. Was he ill? I knew there was a surprisingly high incidence of heart failure in men during sex. Had this bit of afternoon delight proved too much for the poor guy? The woman seemed unconcerned, showing none of the shock you would expect from a woman whose lover pegged out on the job. A woman. She was still moving, but differently. Her shoulders were hunched and her elbows pointed outwards. She panted heavily, but in a way that now seemed less sexual than, what, hard physical labour? Childbirth? It put me in mind of nothing so much as the kind of hammy panting done by someone in a movie playing a spirit medium, going into a trance and summoning up ectoplasm. I can't believe you stayed and watched this. As I have been speaking, my eyes have remained on the dark windows. I can see my ghostly reflection there. Elizabeth's voice drags my eyes back to where she sits, toying with her empty glass. How long have we been together? I've known you a very long time, I say. Have we ever really been together? I've never hidden anything. You choose to look away. You can't go on like this, I say, gesturing at our reflections in the window. I already look like your father. The light in Villa Lydia's bedroom changed, as if a blue-tinted bulb had been switched on somewhere. The kind of blue you see on those strip lights they have in food shops to zap the flies. There was a whining noise coming from somewhere. The woman was different. She pulled away from the man who lay paralysed on the bed. Her limbs looked unnaturally long, almost insect-like. She drew herself up and crouched unmoving above the man, like some kind of human spider. She peered down at his stiff face and cocked her head on one side. The woman lifted a hand and licked her fingers. They looked odd, like they had nail extensions. She got to her feet on the bed, but stayed bent over the man, her hands hanging down on either side of him, her hair almost brushing his face. Her body was all arms and legs, as if she had been stretched on a rack. The blue light thickened, and the keening noise moved up a notch. The woman gasped a sharp inward breath, and arched her back as she clutched at the man's sides with talon-like fingers. He rose up off the bed a few inches, and then turned over. He turned right over once, twice, and then kept spinning. His legs were down between her feet and his chest was beneath her face as he turned over and over in her grasp. 
It reminded me of the way a spider spins a captured fly, binding it up in a web. There was a wet sound, like someone cutting into a ripe melon, and a dark stripe appeared on the man's chest. I realised, with a shock, that he was bleeding. Still he spun, at a speed that seemed impossible. How much strength would it take to pick him up and spin him round that way? I couldn't have done it. As he spun, the woman's nails cut deep into his flesh. The way she hunched her shoulders over him, her head perfectly still, reminded me of the people you saw in amusement arcades, grasping the sides of the slot machines, absorbed in the spinning tumblers. I thought I should intervene. The woman, this woman thing, was hurting the guy, maybe killing him. I couldn't just stand and watch. But this was an idle thought, a butterfly notion easily swatted aside. All I wanted to do was run far away from what I was seeing. And I couldn't even do that. The man's chest was slick with blood. There was blood on the bedsheets and spattered over the woman's breasts and thighs. All at once she stopped, dumped him down and scuttled like a speedy crab down the bed out of my sight. What I could see was the man's bloody chest moving slightly, like something was shaking the bed. When the woman came back into view, I thought at first her mask had slipped lower on her face but then I saw that there was blood on her mouth. She moved like a spider back up the man's body, bent over him and gripped the sides of his head. She remained still for some time, her body pressed close to his bleeding flesh, smearing her skin with his blood. I couldn't see what she was doing, but her posture brought to mind a kitten drinking from a bowl of milk. All at once, the thin noise went away, and the light in the room shifted out of blue and back to normal. The woman slumped sideways on the bed and looked straight at me. I felt my spine turn to water. For an instant I was sure she must see me and I had a vision of the blood-smeared woman slipping off the bed and scuttling towards me on all fours like a hungry insect. But she didn't move or speak and although the dark eyes of her mask directly faced me, either her eyes were closed or she couldn't see me through the small crack at the side of the door. I could hear a kind of Gentle sighing. I thought of the satisfied, sleepy sounds a woman might make after late-night lovemaking. I hated myself for the thought. I edged silently backwards to the stairs and crept down them to the house below, where I pulled open the front door and slipped outside. Within ten yards, I began to run. I glanced back as I reached the first turn in the path, terrified at the thought that a masked and naked woman might be coming after me on elastic legs, arms bloody to the elbow like long red gloves. The path behind me remained empty, and I ran round the corner, and the house was gone. I ran faster, jumping three and four steps at a time, throwing myself headlong around corners and sprinting past a few houses on the path. I ran all the way back, not stopping until I reached the heart of a trani. Branches overhanging the path whipped my face as I ran, and at one point I turned the wrong way to corner and slammed face first into the rough stone wall. I fell backwards and sprawled on the rough path. I lay there for a moment and looked up at the empty crystal bowl of the sky. A scrap of cloud high above looked like the head of a cat. The Italian sky was an impossible, pitiless blue, and I knew it had been that way forever and would be that way when I was only dust. The sun was warm on my face, and I just wanted to close my eyes and lie there until someone came and found me. What a strange story, Elizabeth says. We are alone in the bar now, 
our glasses empty. Did it really happen? I rub my eyes with the heels of my hands. I feel cold and inhumanly tired. I catch sight of my reflection again, and I'm shocked at how old I look. Why would I make it up? This morning, Elizabeth looked tired and old when she told me she was going. Now, by some miracle, her skin is clear and unlined, and she looks fifteen years younger. There is something deep in her eyes that the candlelight can't reach. Despite everything that has happened, I want to touch her, want to feel again the smooth skin of her thighs against my lips. Aren't you going to tell the police? How do you know I haven't? You never do. Neither of us speaks again for some time. After a while, Elizabeth touches the back of my hand, making the hairs on my arm stand erect. I don't know how much longer it can last, I say, like this. You're leaving me behind. Let's not be sad. Not tonight. How long until the next time? Plenty of time, Elizabeth says. You don't need to know. She stands and picks up her bag. Without a word, she turns to leave the room. As I walk up the stairs behind her, I enjoy the view of her slim calves beneath the hem of her tight skirt. For a brief moment, I am distracted by a glimpse of red cloth folded inside her handbag. But we reach our room, and her body soon occupies my attention once more, as it always does. That was Chris Barnum's Ravello Steps, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children, and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, 2016, and his fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with him at mattdovey.com, or follow along on Facebook and Twitter, both as at Matt Dovey Writer. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We've got all kinds of deliciously frightful extras brewing for our supporters that you don't want to miss out on. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino and myself, Drew Sebastini. 
Theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we infiltrate your mind with more Tales to Terrify. like to look five years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.